All right, so thank you for tuning in. This is the first interview we are doing uh, on the podcast for First Time Films, and what a way to begin it with Amy Hoff, writer, director, novelist, actress, theatre, everything. There's nothing you, you haven't done, like a, a jack of all trades, a master of everything that you touch. A big fan, big fan of everything. Now, of course, we met three years ago when you started uh, filming Burns Night, uh, currently in post-production. Uh, looking forward, looking forward to seeing that. So, just for a bit of context, Amy. Um, obviously, you're originally from the United States. When was it that you came over to Scotland? Two thousand and nine. Two thousand and nine. And what was it that attracted you to coming over here in the first instance? Uh, well, I was originally uh, a folklorist. I specialize in American highway legends, and um, I went from that to just other legends and other mythology, and got really invested in Scottish history and Scottish culture and Scottish folklore and especially Scottish monsters. Yeah, and that's a lot of the inspiration behind the Caledonia series. Uh, obviously we've had three, is it three novelizations of, of that series so far. Yeah. Uh, we've had season one and season two uh, that can be found online. Currently, like we say, Burns Night is in post-production. Um, so was that a lot behind the inspiration, your background as a folklorist? Um, for the Caledonia series? Um, it's it's kind of a weird thing because, so Caledonia, I wrote the books first. The books existed before the, ser- the shows did. Um, my inspiration, I suppose, was I had, you know, studied a lot of the folklore and the culture and everything, and then I came here, lived in some of the roughest parts of the city of Glasgow, and um, as a person who formerly was, something of a street tough, I kind of, I really recognized and identified with that aspect of of culture here, and I really liked the idea of all this kind of highly romanticized stuff that people kind of send out, and this is also the fault of Scottish tourist boards, because they make (laughs) the world think this about Scotland, Um, but this idea of of that magical, romanticized uh, version of Scotland meeting modern-day Glasgow and the way that it actually is to live here, but um, I don't know, I just thought it was really funny, I guess, and so a lot of its um, basis is really in comedy, like, it's meant to be funny. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of uh, really good duality in the characters going on, especially with Robert Burns, as we'll see in Burns Night. Everything's not as it seems, it's not morally left or right black and white is down the middle and I think that's what's interesting is it is this dark seedy underbelly of Glasgow meeting these uh, highbrow <laughs> monsters of mythology and that's what's exciting about that like how do you go about writing that then like when you first sit down to put pen to paper with that world like where do you start like in building that because that can't be an easy task well I um actually I wrote Caledonia on the Seoul subway when I was living in South Korea wow after I had gone to school here and lived yeah. here for a long time and um I just, I have a real love of Selkies because I really like the um, concept of uh, male characters that exist specifically to be beautiful and sexually yeah. attractive and that's their purpose. And um, you don't see that a lot in folklore and uh, of, of any kind or especially in, in pop culture. So I started out with that and um, I wrote Leah Bishop as a, she's like a film noir detective that's kind of not... She's in a universe that she doesn't really understand, um, and then Dorian Gray, who's the Selkie, who's her partner, and it was meant to start out with that dichotomy, but choosing the monsters to to use um, 
I mean, there's so many that it's really hard to narrow down what ones you want to put in or like you think, oh, this one is really cool and I want to put that in there and this kind of stuff. So um, I guess like I figure because Caledonia is a series, I don't have to do get to every single one right away. So I started with my favorites, which are that, um, the Bob and She Scottish Vampires. Um, and like kelpies are in the first book but obviously aren't in the first film because we don't have that kind of money <laughs> um but uh i don't know i just like i find all of that really intriguing and also like kind of what made that wait what made the culture invent these monsters i mean or maybe they're real i don't know but um why did scottish people think of this stuff like the knuckle of e is one of the strangest and scariest things what's that um, so the Knuckle of Ye happen, exists in, in Mortal Souls, that's the one that covers that monster. Um, the Knuckle of Ye is an Orcadian myth about a monster that is a skinless human torso attached to a skinless horse. Um, both the human torso and the horse have huge like shark teeth basically but and the human torso's arms are really long so they drag on their ground and they have huge claws and like... Oh. Why? Why? Like, you, you can't just imagine that you're sitting here thinking like who comes up with that stuff who in the, the middle of the day they're drinking their tea and like this is my thought like, this, is my, this well, is my happy place given the, um, the story most of the stories about the knuckle of e, um, uh, usually occur uh, with a man who's leaving the pub late at night and he's like walking alone through the thing so so the guy's drunk yeah. the, probably I'm assuming here um, <laughs> and he, it's in the dark this is and this these stories have been told before electric light and stuff so like I don't know I've spent I used to live on Isla and I've spent a lot of times in the dark in the highlands and like walking around <laughs> and if you were drunk I can see that things might yeah. come to your mind but, uh, and a lot of the time it's about a man being chased by one of these monsters, and then um, in the stories he usually reaches running water, which most of the fae in Scotland can't pass. Unless, obviously, they're like selkies or something, but if they're land-based creatures, um, if you jump over running water, they're, they're blocked by it. That's true of witches as well. And um, there's also the, uh, the, the Knuckle of Ease, sort of like the winter monster, and then like the summer, the sea uh, goddess or something, I can't remember the name now, but uh, comes out, Shoni, I think, but I'm, I might be wrong here because yeah. there are so many. Anyway, it comes out and like scares the Nakofi away or something. So like they're all, all of these stories have little sort of branches that go out and you know, people will build on them and make up new things and, and stuff. So. That's crazy, like I could listen to you talk folklore all day, you clearly have an encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of this stuff is, is insane but to move on from the sort of mythical side of it to the sort of cold and hard filmmaking scientific yeah. side of things here which is always that's, that's the, the burden we have to live with in that world obviously season one and two of Caledonia uh, available online for everyone to watch right now yeah. uh, the third uh, novel Burns Night yeah. adapted into a feature film yeah. what was your favourite moment uh, in making Burns Night so far and what has been the biggest challenge you would say with this particular project? Um, with Burns Night I think uh, my, my favourite things always with every project I work on are um, kind of in-jokes that happen and the blooper reel, that's my favourite thing because yeah. it, it really shows kind of what every time that you get together to do a project whether it's theatre or film it becomes a little community of people and like kind of a little family and like um, there's a lot of jokes that just will only make sense to you and them forever, and uh, 
I love that. I love the blooper reel. I mean, I basically, I've always said I only do this for the parties. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's, that's the thing that keeps bringing me back to making the stories and even as hard as it can be. Um, and the second half is what? The biggest challenge. The biggest yeah. challenge. Oh, man. Okay, so it depends on what side you're talking about during filmmaking or after because afterwards the biggest challenge that I had was getting deported yeah. and the problem with that was that I, I lost contact with everything and everybody and I couldn't find people to help me do the post and so it's basically become a situation where um, we, uh, we've done it ourselves mm-hmm. just me and him, me and Alistair and uh, so we've done everything, we've done ADR ourselves we're doing color ourselves, we're doing final audio ourselves he did the editing um because the 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 biggest issue is um you can't you can't trust anybody but yourself yeah at the end of the day if you want to stun because you know everybody's got stuff they want to do and and a film is at the end of the day a a team effort and unfortunately uh, although I would, I would rather we didn't have to do everything. That's kind of been the case. That's been, so. yeah, and you've had to you've rolled with the punches with in terms of that. And I can't wait to see the final product what came out with in terms of the the editing process. Um, always the hardest part of the, making the film on set is probably where we have the the most fun. And I wanted to get into that. Like you've been a writer and director. Uh, produced, but you've also directed and produced theatre productions. Yeah. Um, as the founder of uh, Cult Classic, uh, you did an adaptation of, of Dark Omens. Good Omens. Yeah, Good Omens. Sorry. Yeah. See, I wrote down good. That, this is what I'm <laughs> talking to you about my handwriting and the way over here. I'm looking down at it. I'm like, I don't trust myself. And also Doctor Horrible, which yeah. I believe is the only official adaptation of that that was in, in the, the UK, UK uh-huh. at that point. Uh, so I wanted to get into that. Has that background in theatre? helped make the jump across to filming something cinematically? Um, no, it's actually been a detriment, honestly. Um, yeah. I, obviously, it's where I, I learned more stuff about directing, but being, uh, film and theatre require very, very different skills, um, from not just from the director's perspective, but from the actors especially, because um, we, we were a theatre company. A lot of the people that were in Burns and I come from that original yeah. uh, theatre company, and it took a long time to explain to them that they can't be really big and kind of broad and loud and whatever. They need to be really focused kind of like inwardly on their face and their facial expressions and and this kind of stuff because both of those things take different, you know, like a different effort. And the other thing is with theater, you're going, you know, from the beginning to the end. Like it doesn't, it's not like we're jumping all around and filming, you know, one thing one day and then like the thing from the end the next day and then something from the middle on the next day. and yeah and there's also just a little bit more of a cohesion a cohesive group when you do theater that are like the people see each other all the time at rehearsals and they're always you know like this i mean we did stuff where i mean you know as a pa that some people never even met each other that yeah. were in the movie so like it's kind of yeah so it's a little bit more disjointed and it's also and the other thing is the theater is is finished when it's finished it's not like you finish filming and then it's three more years or whatever it is of like post-production and stuff. Yeah, an ongoing so. process after that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mariel Heller, who directed um, Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, came out earlier this year with Melissa McCartney. She was saying that, sort of a similar thing to you, there's not too much of a crossover, but the only thing that she found that helped her make that transition was she could communicate 
with her actors better than a lot of other directors can? Because she's saying a lot of other directors were nervous about dealing with actors. Do you feel that's maybe something that's helped? I know you lot worked with a lot of the same cast that you did work with um, in Cult Classics, however. Is there, was there some crossover with that? Um, as far as, I mean, like I've always said I'm an actor's director because yeah. I work really closely with my actors. I'm also personally an actor, so... Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that's really important, and I don't know if this is actually like a female versus male director thing, but I know, you know, Maria, who played Leah, yeah. she told me that she had been on a set with some guy, a director, who didn't think they needed bathrooms, and I was like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, and so, but just knowing that your actors need stuff and need breaks and need, you know, food and all these things, like a lot, you would be surprised at the number of people who do that. And then I'm very much, I'm a proponent of an eight-hour filming day yeah. and a lot of directors are really anti they'll they want 12 to 16 hours a day especially in the states and um and in like vancouver and i just really disagree with that because i'm like once you get once you hit that point you don't have you're not getting your best from yourself not from your actors not from your people you know yeah. and i mean i realize that we spend a lot of time outside in the dark and the cold and rain and stuff. <laughs> but for the most yeah. part you know i tried really hard not to have it be this extended day and like yeah but whatever. you're always going to get that there's those pitfalls with the filmmaking process there's going to be moments where stuff needs to work out and stuff goes on so there will be that element waiting around one thing i can say from working your set was right what you say it was a lot more you felt you were being looked after all the time and I think that's one of the best proponents of you as a filmmaker is you're very much caring of the people around you and the team around you which oh, is fantastic man. but <laughs> I, 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 I kind of I, I gauge this answer from what you've said there filmmaking theatre directing if you had to pick one what would you go with um theatre yeah. if I could but the thing is I mean I, yes, I, I do prefer theater and some of my actors also do because that's the world they come from. Yeah. However, the other ob the other problem with theater is you can't, there's no money in it yeah. unless you're like Broadway or something. And so it's, and I'm not saying that there's money in filmmaking either, <laughs> but there's more of a, a chance to get out there and show people what you're able to do in the way, way theater just isn't. Yeah. And, um, it's you know it's it's kind of a it's a it's a toss up because whether or not you like it more isn't really about it's not really about that it's about like what can you do with your career in theater well unless i want to do you know x thousand times exact you know fiddler on the roof or whatever no offense to fiddler on the roof but like i'm just using it as an example yeah. but like just the same thing again and again and again because those are the things that will make you money and the thing is when i even when i do theater plays like this year i'm doing strangers in paradise which will another be another world yeah. first for us um but it's you know like the sort of first in the world that's done by an amateur theatrical group um but I'm all, and that's what we did with Good Omens and stuff, and I'm always looking to push the envelope in that way. Now, that's, you know, great for some things. Like, everybody wants to see Good Omens here because this is the UK and everyone knows what that is. But whereas, you know, like, I don't know, you can take a risk with stuff like Dr. Horrible because you don't know if everyone is going to be as keen on that because it's such a, an American thing, basically. Yeah. So, um, so that's what I look to do in theater. But the other aspect that's really hard, um, and this was actually really hard for us after we finished Good Omens, which we worked on for a year, um, we knew that we had to let it go. And that was tough, you know, and because and we thought after that, and this is why we made Caledonia, we said, well, what can we do that we can keep? Yeah. You know, that can be ours and we can do whatever we want with it. And then, that, you know, someone said, well, you're making these books about Glasgow and we live in Glasgow, so why don't we do that? And 
so I think that's those are the kind of issues that come up with theater and and with film. So yeah. I mean, so I guess the answer is yes. I prefer theater because it's it's just kind of like a world I prefer in general, but it's not uh, it's not practical. Yeah, I guess. Well, we're getting we talk, touched on this earlier. Um, we're in an era where the place of women in film is being challenged from what it has been for the last 50 years or something we're living in the sort of what people are dubbing the me too era and we're questioning the sort of pay discrepancies between men and women that are inherent in the industry most recently we had the oscar nominations come out there wasn't a female nominee for the best director the only two that were really in the consideration of the running were um mario heller who i discussed earlier on and um Oh, I don't, I forgot. Lynn, Lynn Ramsey, who directed you were, you were Never Really Here. What, in your opinion, is the most fundamental thing that has to change about film culture um, so we can see, hopefully in the next 10, 20 years, we're not having these discussions anymore? Well, it's really interesting that you ask this because I had just responded to a, a friend of mine who's a distributor about this, and he's occasionally mentioned that he himself hasn't, you know, taken on a lot of women's movies for distribution and... Um, and was talking about how this lady that he knew had just won a BAFTA, but she was the only female director that he could think of that had. And I said to him, okay, so there are a couple of problems here. One of them is money. I mean, money is like the number one thing. That's, that's, what, that's what's needed, financing. Because when I make stuff, I, you know, I get a job, part-time job, whatever it is, you know, and like just, just throw as much money into the thing as I can, make as much sort of like... I don't know what you'd call it, like, do whatever I can with, with what I've got. Yeah. And, but that doesn't, you know what I mean? That doesn't necessarily mean that, like, the movie's gonna go to festival, the movie's gonna get picked up, that anything, anything like that, you know? So that's the first thing. And the second thing that needs to be done is real opportunities. Because, like, you'll get stuff like shadowing, for example, or um, director's workshops, writer's workshops, whatever you wanna call it. And then, all of this is great and then people do this like back padding thing but we don't actually see evidence in the sense of like how many like big studio movies are directed by women and i mean those are those people ch are chosen to do that like they don't you know what i mean and they're and they're like i don't think star wars for example has ever had a female director they haven't no they had the, a female editor directed the uh, edited the first star wars movie but apart from that there hasn't really been any major behind the scenes people apart from the exception of Kathleen Kennedy who's the head of Lucasfilm yeah and she should she should be able to yeah. say like hey she should you be know. able to make those decisions and one of the things that really struck me recently was that Red Sonja uh, was picked up for adaptation and instead of hiring maybe an up-and-coming female director, someone who's trying to cut their teeth in the genre, the studio decided to hire Brian Singer, um, who has had multiple, multiple accusations against him. And I think that was just deplorable and really showed where we are in this society where we're saying a lot about making this change, but like you say, has there really been evidence of, the, of an action being taken? Well, and that's the thing, there hasn't been. Because, again, people... From my perspective, and I'm in the industry, and I'm—I uh, mean, like it's not as obvious as maybe it should be, but like I know a lot of people in it, and I go to Cannes every year and everything, and I, what I see is just a lot of people expecting that this is going to blow over too, and I don't think they understand that the world is fundamentally changing now, and I think once that gets into their heads, you know, we might see something different, but for right now, uh, 
the people who have the power and the money, i.e. the opportunities and the financing and all that stuff, um, aren't giving these opportunities to women. Just They just aren't. You know, and it's, um, and that this is true all around. Like, it's not just women directors, like women in the TV writers rooms and, you know, women here and there. Yeah. Um, and the frustration I find as well is that I know, like, I, I'm a member of several different women in film and women in television uh, groups. And there are thousands and thousands of female directors all over the world. And, but I mean, people make these... <sighs> They say these things and they have this impression of women. And I can tell you, I live in Los Angeles and the sexism there is like, it's it's like 1925. I mean, it's unbelievably ridiculous how bad it is. But it's because, you know, it's it's a, it's a microcosm in which people don't really get outside of their boxes. They don't understand like the, the way that the rest of the world works. And um, one frustration I, I had was I had read about a you know show here that was saying that they, they they don't usually hire women directors because they shoot and I quote in the rain and wet of Scotland oh, and I'm like goodness wow <laughs> you know let me tell you about shooting in the rain and wet of Scotland exactly if there's anyone that should know about shooting in the rain and wet it's you so I have some choice opinions about that yeah. but I but it's but it is it is that that you know and, and this is another well that's another issue from my perspective which is that Scotland doesn't have decision makers and I'm very like vocal about that um, I had been invited uh, to go and pitch Caledonia to um, a television network and but the Glasgow branch couldn't make that decision they had to send me to Manchester yeah which then it's like well what the hell does Manchester or London know anything about Scotland or what people in Scotland want or like or care about yeah you're you taking know? away a localization that's inherent to this story it's a very much Glasgow centric story so and that's one of the things we've talked about those rumors of the major studios being developed up in Scotland is that something that you would like to see but is it something you think is ultimately going to pan out um okay so like this this has come up repeatedly over the decade that I've lived here. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens? So what happens is that they talk a big game, and then it it, it doesn't happen. Or if it does happen, um, that studio space is sold to Star Wars to whatever random thing. Yeah, it's this is the problem because you're not there. Building a studio here is meaningless if there are no decision makers here. If there's if there's no film industry here, mm-hmm. there's no film industry in Scotland. Not not really. Not in the way that there is in London or yeah. LA or New York City. And I'm like, it's very frustrating because like the number and my actors and whoever will come at me like, oh no, but this is going to happen. Or it's just around the corner, and it's just it's not. Yeah. And and the only way that it will be is once they actually put decision makers in the country because I mean even like everyone BBC Scotland that's down in London you know what I mean yeah. everything is is coming from England and this is very frustrating because you don't you don't understand what Scotland is like or what people in Scotland want unless you live here for yeah. a long time and I mean I'm not even saying that I know what they want but the point no, is I, I live in Glasgow and I know at least that yeah you so. you lose a sort of national identity when you don't have these decision makers in the country I, I completely agree with that yeah. um, and it's one of those things hopefully the change is around the corner hopefully we'll be sitting here in 10 years and thinking yes like, this is it but 
like you say, you've been listening to this for over a decade. I so just, yeah, I can't skeptical. buy it, man. I feel like in a, in a decade, I'm just going to be here in the same, it's yeah. just around the next corner, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, man, you got to take the ball by the horns something if you want has something to change. To change. Yeah. You have to do it. Like, yeah. you have, Scotland has to do it. You can't just expect someone to come and hand it out to you. Because yeah. when they do that, two things happen. Either you take too damn long to figure out whether or not you want it, like what happened with Pinewood, which ended up being the Wales studio where yeah. Doctor Who is made. Or... All of your studio space ends up going to international productions that you have nothing to do with, okay? If there was a film industry here, there would be literal casting agencies that aren't just for extras yeah. in this country, okay? If it was Edinburgh or Glasgow. And yes, there are a couple, but not to the... Not majorly accessible ones, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, honestly, what do Scottish people have to do to become successful in the industry? They have to move to London. They always do. Everyone that I have talked to, every aspiring young actress that I have known from school or throughout the the process of just meeting people is if they've said I need to move to London to try and make this work yeah well. exactly and I think that's really it's sad because it's, and then they they make Scottish Scottish based you know shows or whatever and yeah. they hire down there they don't come up here and yeah. look for people you know sometimes but rarely and it's just it's frustrating for me because I believe a lot in Scotland and I care a lot about it and uh, although you know I care about it in a way that's you know tends to point out the problems yeah. as well as the good things but the thing is like if you don't do that you know you can't Stop you practical. can't be pretty <laughs> like you can't just live on romance alone guys exactly like, it's, and and if we want a real change then that means that we by which i mean people here in scotland we have to make that change mm -hmm. it's important that we do that and not just wait for handouts i like that i like that so moving focus away from scotland for a minute american drifter Oh, your memoirs yeah fantastic what was that process like and it's obviously inherently personal like how do you go about writing about your your life story and experience well honestly when i wrote that i uh i i wrote it because i was very startled to find out that people romanticized the way that i had lived which i was so i mean i'm so used to people romanticizing like scotland and ireland and all these kinds of things and then i find out that oh well i apparently living on the road in a leather jacket or whatever <laughs> is like really exciting yeah and but it, but it was really funny because like i was like oh maybe i should write this down then um and it's just there's like not a lot to say because it's not very uh, you know i mean so i, I wrote it in little vignettes mm -hmm. kind of little here's what happened here and there because like 14 hours you're driving is kind of just that <laughs> like it's just you know what I mean? there's a lot of gaps in there's between really a, where events yeah, happen yeah exactly and so i was trying to you know explain what that was like and um I guess it is different because when I went back to the States, which I hadn't been in a while, uh, yeah, the world has changed and including America and where I, the way that I grew up, like living in motels and like diners and this sort of very kind of vintage Americana, uh -huh. which I didn't know at the time, but <laughs> I didn't realize I was like being a, I don't know, Jack Kerouac on the road kind of character, but... Um, but that that was that was very possible back then, and now it's not. It's it, you know everything has changed, and um, it's it, I don't know. It, it was it was a weird uh, situation writing it out because you can't really. Yeah. There's nothing chronological about it. I mm -hmm. guess is what I'm trying to say. It's it's quite. Um, this thing happened here. This thing happened there. You know that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, and what was the difference like trying to tackle this work rather than say the novelization of. Caledonia, uh, or Mortal Souls, or Burns Night. Oh, uh, what was the difference between writing something that is set in this sort of 
fictional constructed world and then trying to make sense of your own story? Well, the thing is, you know, a story has like a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. And like life isn't like that. And no. so you just kind of... And then you have to sit there and go like, well, what happened that people might find interesting that I didn't find interesting? But other people, because they don't, they didn't live that way and they don't know what that's like, you know, what would they find interesting? And I would sit there and I'd try to explain things that are just to me very, I don't know, like explaining to somebody how to like make coffee or mm-hmm. something. But like, yeah. I'm sitting there like, <laughs> it's, sort of ab- it's, it's so obvious <laughs> to me, but okay. You know, and like, I remember I did like a bunch of detail into like how to take care of your car and like how to make sure that it's, you know, whatever, ready for the winter time. And, you know, <laughs> just random stuff that doesn't seem, I don't know, to me just seem like, you want to know that? Okay. Yeah, but it's fascinating <laughs> because a lot of people, like you say, a lot of people wouldn't have had that. Experience. I remember sitting, it was a, it was a break in filming. Um, on Burns Night and we were sitting in the room and Govan, I can't remember the name of that, of that hall now, the building where the Pierce Institute. The Pierce Institute, yeah, we were sitting yeah. in the room there and you were telling some of these stories uh, to the cast and crew and I remember just being absolutely fascinated by the whole thing. So it's like it's like you're saying, it's like you lived that and experienced it, but to other people it's a totally different world that is in some ways just as fantastical as a lot of the stuff that's written in Burns Night. So I would uh, implore everyone to go online, uh, see if they can get the memoir and have a wee copy of it because it's absolutely fan- phenomenal, uh, oh, those thanks. experiences. Um, I'd like to ask you a question. Okay. It's sort of a hypothetical scenario. Okay. You're asked by a studio to write and direct a movie on Brexit. <laughs> Where do you begin tackling that? Uh, well, they already have one, is the thing. Yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, there. I seen that was coming out. Either. So he yeah. did, yeah, he did that. I don't know, I haven't seen it, so I can't say <laughs> one way or the other. I don't know, because I'm not... I just feel that because I'm American, I would just get piled on. Because, yeah. you know, people would be like, well, what the hell do you know? And the stuff, and I'm like, well, I know, and you're being stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. I just, so now, now I've gained a bunch of enemies. But I, I just, I don't know. I find it very frustrating. I do um, updates and stuff on it for my American friends. Partially because, yeah, America is very, it doesn't hear a lot about this uh, stuff. And yeah. it, uh, it, it kind of drives me nuts when Americans do this, like, bowing and scraping towards, like, British people. And yeah. be like, I'm just a stupid American and, like, blah, blah. I'm like, stop fucking saying that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Shut yeah. up. Like, I mean, yes, a lot of us are dumb. But so are a lot of people here. Yeah. You know, you don't just get to be brilliant because you're British. That's not how it works. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know. But uh, if I, 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 I'm not sure I would do it just because I, first of all, I feel like that's a, a topic better better addressed by British people, mm-hmm. but also just because I don't want to profit off of pain. That's also the thing, like, would you feel more comfortable talking about maybe the Trump era or the administration because that's the sort of American political zeitgeist that's going on or would it be the similar, a sort of similar situation? So, um, as far as... Well, that's another stupidity, obviously, but, like, uh, because I've been here yeah. most of that time, that I, I don't yeah. really know. I mean, like, I, I know that I'm against it. Yeah. And um, I am against Nazis. Uh, that's something that I feel we should all agree on. Yeah, that's a sort of bipartisan issue <laughs> sure that we I should feel be. that way, but, uh, but, on the, but the thing is, like, both of these political things, um, mm-hmm. because I didn't live in, in America during most of that campaign, or most of the presidency, I, I don't yeah. think, I, again, don't feel like I'm the best place to address it, at least yeah. in a cinematic way. But the other thing is, like, I don't, I don't like 
making stuff about politics. Like, I, I don't mind, like, talking about it, but I'm very much a, a, a proponent of... When I create things, I want to make them fun and enjoyable, and um, I'm really, like, anti-grimdark, gritty yeah. stuff. Like, I actually really like hopeful things, even though we made a vampire movie, but, I mean, but it's, even that is quite lighthearted. I, I wanted to ask you about this, because it's interested me the way the direction the horror genre specifically has went in the last couple of years a lot of the horror movies are gearing towards this sort of political analogy side of things we've seen movies like get out uh, that have been doing that we've seen movies like hereditary that came out uh, last year do you like the shift that's happened in horror or do you think we need more stuff that is purely to go and have this sort of escapist experience that used to be what the genre was tailor-made for in the 90s and stuff. Well, I feel like uh, that, I mean, that's, horror has always been political. That's the point of yeah. horror. It's always been about stuff. It's always been about, I mean, Get Out is a, a really obvious one, but um, I mean, like, horror to me has always been a political commentary type of um, genre. I mean, like, you look back at, like, The Step for Wives and... Um, the, the 70s one, not the comedy version. Yeah. Uh, obviously. But a lot of it is, it's always been political, it's always pushed the envelope um, in in that way, and it's it's a lot more intellectual than people give it credit for in, in many ways, and most horror is commentary on something or another. Like, it's, you know, I don't, I don't really agree that this is a new thing, and like, I actually disagree with this whole elevated horror concept. That's not real. It's, horror has always been the call it, Yeah, it was the, what was, the, what was like, the phrase people were using? I heard it more last year, it was post horror. Or something. I think, yeah, it was, the, but, it was the phrase people were attributing to it. But the thing is, it's not. It's exactly the kind of horror that's always been there. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's, there's kind of like, there are, there are little forks off to the side, like, you know, sort of like the torture porn kind of horror, and this kind of horror and that kind of horror but like yeah. the concept of it being intellectual or, or political or anything like that that's it always has been it's always been like that that's a point of it that's yeah. why it's scary like it's not you know yeah and so I, I really disagree with this idea that suddenly horror has become intellectual because it also it also puts down other horror creators and i really don't agree with that yeah no and I wanted to ask you this this just going off of this off the top of my head you can get access to any classic monster or creature of mythology mm. to make an, a film about unlimited budget, imagine the world. <laughs> well, I mean, what I would could, you pick? Honestly, if we could do that, I would just do Caledonia. Yeah. Because, like, I just really like, I don't know, I just really like it. Yeah. It's fun, and it also gives me the options to play with lots of different monsters yeah. and, um, and stuff. But uh, I don't know, like, any specific particular one. Uh, I honestly think that the Knuckle of Eden deserves a real, like a true monster movie. Because, yeah. like, of all monsters, I don't know one that sounds creepier to me than that one. Yeah, and, like, definitely. The, the image you painted earlier was just, oh it's no. It's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. We have, well, we actually have the, the monster that was built for the. Poor mortal souls just sitting on the thing in our bedroom. <laughs> that must like... be terrifying when you're coming in drunk from the pub. <laughs> Sorry, the thing has followed you all the way home, but, but there's no running water in sight. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, when you make horror, it's sort of, you just get used to this stuff sort of yeah. lying around. Like, Christopher's little goblin, eviscerated goblin, has been sitting around, I think, in the bag for a long time. Now, three years, I'm like, oh, there's that. It broke. You know, and uh, I think he's still got Fludge sitting on yeah. the side there, yeah, nice. of, of his back at his house that's so. a cute monster though <laughs> yeah he was he's fledges is supposed to be he was inspired by gremlins and crabs yeah. and like those kind of cute cute scary monsters i guess and like yeah <laughs> 
So, I, and the other thing is, you know, if, if I have unlimited budget, I would probably separate it into more than one film because I would want to be able to make various things. Because I have like six or seven scripts I've not made into anything yet. Yeah. So, you know. You want to try and expand? Maybe share the share the budget around a wee bit, shuffle things. I mean, my big dream, I really want to be able to have this be a successful venture and, you know, all that stuff. And like I said, you know, money is the, the big lag for that's, us. That's the fact. For, for everybody that does this. So. so I wanted to wrap this up by asking three questions. Okay. And this is going to start a trend I intend on trying to wrap up every interview with these three questions, alright? Okay. I don't expect to maybe know the answers that you're going to give. I think you're going to give me some interesting answers here. Okay. Favourite film of all time? Favourite actor of all time? Favourite director of all time? Uh, favourite film of all time is Stay, mm-hmm. um, which is still my favourite movie. I'm, I'm waiting for it to like be eclipsed, but not so far. Secondarily, it was Harold and Maude before that, so like those are those are the two kind of the even ones. Favourite actor is... I don't know, well the thing is like, I was actually thinking about this the other day. Um, <laughs> Kathy Bates is probably one of my favourite actresses, Yeah. Um, but just for sheer ability and skill, Tatiana Maslany, who played in Orphan Black, I've never yeah. seen anybody able to do that. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, you, I mean, and you forget she's the same. It's the same woman playing all these different people, and yeah. So, I gotta give her that. You know, I, I'm. It's not. It's not even a favorite actor thing. It's more like, wow, that's the most that's impressive, impressive thing I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. What was the third one? Sorry. Uh, b- f- uh, best director, favorite director. Favorite director. Uh. Danny Boyle. Actually. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. Did you see the trailer for his new film? I haven't. Yesterday is called. Is uh, it about someone who found a bunch of money in a box? Because this has become like a theme in my opinion. No. Basically, (laughs) kind of like so. The guy is a guy who plays in pubs and he covers the Beatles and stuff all the time. And one day he bangs his head and he wakes up in a world where no one knows who the Beatles are. So he just starts profiting off of (laughs) making remaking the Beatles. It makes like the best album of all time because he just using all the Beatles' greatest. (laughs) Okay, so it's not finding money in a box, but it's finding something like money. Yeah, it's basically like Um, this. I'm just, I'm teasing, but it is funny that there's so many things that he did that was... Yeah, like, like he seems to go, like, this is the direction he's went, with the exception of uh, the Steve Jobs film that came out a lot of them have been like that like Slumdog Millionaire like these the down and out's getting this this opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to make it to the, the Shallow Grave yeah oh. if I'm thinking of the right thing it was just, it's just funny that it's all kind of the same <laughs> it's all went to the same thing but uh but yeah and I mean like I have actually several favourite directors and, and stuff for different reasons for different films but like as far as something someone that I, I know that I've always enjoyed uh, watching stuff. So a consistency of the work, yeah. Basically, well, I mean, it's I, I, it's it's hard to say because directing is. It's hard to see the mark of a director, mm. unless they are also the writer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like you don't know where did that come from. Is it the writing? Is it the acting? Is it the unless they have like a really specific visual style, like say. Uh, David Fincher comes to mind just because of like his really dark colour palette. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, if yeah. I need to turn the brightness up on my TV, I'm like, okay, this is probably a David Fincher film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you'll notice. Yeah, you'll see some ones have some of them do have like a that, but uh, yeah. like a, a some kind of a, a signature style. But it, that's what I'm saying is this: it's really it's not always easy to tell mm-hmm. where where the brilliance is coming from. And so I, you know, even with myself, like I don't know if that's because I'm a good director <laughs> or because I choose the right actors or because of you yeah. know 
choosing the right look or, or whatever. It's like you say, it's like a total uh, filmmaking is a team process. Like there's so many little pe- bits and pieces that need to fall into place for everything to work out. But it yeah. was absolutely amazing talking to you today. The novelization of Burns Out, uh, Burns Out, Burns Night. It's out now. Burns Out, Burns Night is out now. Where can people find that? Uh, well, it's on it's on Amazon. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on Amazon. Go and check that out, guys. Go and buy that. Thank you very much, Amy, for having me here today. And yeah, guys, welcome. listening to our next episode, I think we're talking Guardians of the Galaxy too. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you very much, guys, and have a good day. <laughs>